This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the Oakley Show podcast for Friday, October 16, 2020. A man in New York State just wanted to renovate his home, but what he found behind the walls has put him squarely at the center of an unfolding American murder mystery. It took 36 years, but now we're told that the mystery surrounding Christine Jessup's death has been resolved by way of DNA. We hear from a pioneer in the field of genetic genealogy who explains the tools now being used by law enforcement. And we're joined by the chief of the Sabaganaga D First Nation in Nova Scotia, who's calling on the Trudeau government to put their money where their mouth is when it comes to truth and reconciliation. All of this starts right now. People working from the home, and then there are others working on their home, like Nick Drummond, a New York State homeowner, uh, just wanted to do some renovations. And what did those renos uh, really bring about? Uh, great revelations. And he's here to share some of this wild, wild story. Nick, I appreciate you joining the Oakley Show here in Toronto. Good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. Listen, uh, I'm reading your story and I'm following it on Facebook. Uh, so you've got this, you and your partner, Patrick, decided you'd buy a home, a dream home in a small upstate New York village, uh, if I've got that right. And uh, when you started to reno... All kinds of great things were being revealed to you. Is that about right? Yeah, that's about right. <laughs> so it's what kind of things pretty, were revealed? You know, we started by repairing some trim below our mudroom. And in the process, we ended up finding out that our entire mudroom foundation was packed full of all of these hand-tied bundles of whiskey. It was basically covered in secret compartments. <laughs> Wow. Uh, And so when you say bundles of whiskey, so there were intact bottles in those bundles? Oh, absolutely. It was, you had, there were six bottles per bundle, all wrapped in straw, tied, and then kind of all tied together in a paper bag, tied with literally a brown string. And they were sort of just perfectly sized for these compartments behind the uh, foundation walls. And so, you know, the funny thing is, our neighbors, when we bought the house, actually told us that, oh, you know, that's an old bootlegger's house. And, you know, you take that kind of stuff with a grain of salt. I mean, there's so many people in the country love to gossip. So we went with it, but never in a million years did we think it could actually be true. Um, And and so, so, wait a minute. So this was the uh, foundation of the mudroom, but as you started to explore and do uh, restorations, you know, incrementally uh, uh, throughout the house, there was more of the same discovery, wasn't there? There was. It's actually a lot of it centers to the mudroom. So we go back into the mudroom because now we're like, you know, we're totally fascinated. And we're like, there was always this this stupid hatch in the floor. And, you know, we, we saw the hatch when we bought the house. But we didn't really think anything of it. We just, you know, I assumed it's an unfinished room. It's just access to get to the crawl space beneath. Of course, now it's like we have to crawl in the hatch. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I get in there and sort of, it, it, there's maybe 12 to 18 inches of space. You're in dirt. There's an abandoned hand-dug well, which is a little terrifying. Don't fall in that. And then, you know, oh, the first thing that's weird is you're under the mudroom, you look up, and this is an unfinished room, and you don't see floor joists. Instead, all you see are boards covering the bottom of the joists, held in place with flathead screws. 
All right. So, and what did you see yeah. behind the boards? Well, we ended up taking a few off, and our floors are lined in whiskey. <laughs> There's even more. Wow. And, so uh, this bootlegger, he, he, he really uh, outfitted the house with all kinds of hidden compartments where he was hiding the booze that he was bootlegging. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we have probably have somewhere between, oh God, I don't even know, 70 and 90 bottles of booze in our walls and floors. So, and, and absolutely the, not. And, and the booze is intact in bottles that have not been broken. I mean, have you, uh, what are you going to do with the, have you drunk any of that whiskey in there? I mean, because it's got to be 100 years now. It doesn't age necessarily in the bottle, but uh, a lot of times it evaporates. Uh, have you tested the quality of the booze at all? So we haven't tested it yet. We're going to. Uh, one of the so one of the interesting things is I would say about forty to fifty percent of the bottles are totally fine and full, and the others are totally empty. And I think the ones that survived were actually kept upside down. And my guess here is that the corks were kept wet. Mm. Were the bottles labeled? They are. It's funny enough, they're all old smuggler whiskey. So, of course, he was a smuggler who smuggled old smuggler. Well, and probably, more than likely, during the Volstead Act from Canada, uh, where, you know, the booze oh. was being... Yeah, I know, absolutely, you're probably right. I mean, you know, so we keep, we're finding this stuff, and actually we've got auction houses and private collectors and people reaching out to us, because apparently, at least the full bottles, these things have some value, which is kind of crazy. What kind of value? Um, so we're hearing, you know, anything between 500 to $1,000 a bottle. Wow, yeah, that's not bad. I mean, if you got uh, cases of the stuff. I'm really intrigued, though, Nick. I mean, in the story, uh, you know, the bootleggers bungalow, <laughs> and it, which has come to fruition because, in fact, you're finding the bootleg booze there. Uh, but the character himself, there's a whole story going on there and a lot of palace intrigue. Uh, tell us in a nutshell what that's about. Oh, honestly, that's the best part. I mean, so, you know, we, we find all this booze. We set up this uh, Facebook and Instagram account, Bootlegger Bungalow. And honestly, I didn't think there was going to be much more. But we decided to do some digging to try to find the bootlegger. And so we go to the, the county clerk. We're trying to dig through all these historic deeds that are all handwritten. And we end up actually finding some names. And, you know, I, and I and go home and we're looking through the historic newspaper archives thinking we're not going to find anything. And, oh, my God, there is an absolutely overwhelming amount of historic newspaper clippings and court cases about this guy. So, so and the, the story is, it's insane. It reads like a century-old whodunit that was never fully solved. So the guy's name is uh, Adolf Humpfner. He is this German guy who goes locally by the Count, Count Humpfner. Mm. Now, the funny thing is, after his death, they never actually were able to prove any sort of royalty. He basically just made it up and told everyone, oh. and they believed him. <laughs> right, and, and so the lineage, uh, I mean, the idea that he might have been married uh, more than once, and uh, people claiming, I guess, uh, dibs on his estate, uh, you followed that paper trail as well, didn't you? Oh, it gets crazy. So, so he dies under sort of suspicious circumstances in 1932. The only person to witness his death is this guy, Harry Berry. And the names in this story are hilarious, and they just keep getting crazier. But Harry Berry, he's the mayor of Fort Plain. He witnesses the death. He also becomes the administrator of the will and the lead investigator, hmm. which is crazy. And so 
they're trying to figure out who this guy was. They come to his house, our house, after his death. The house is covered in papers. There's $45,000 all over the floor. There are deeds to multiple buildings in New York City, multiple aliases, foreign bank accounts. You know, this guy was up to crazy things. Um, And so, you know, after his death, the other crazy part of this is he has this long-lost widow, uh, Helen. And so after his death, there's this woman who comes up, and she's like, I am the long-lost widow of Count Humpner. But it turns out she's an imposter. <laughs> of course, cause it just, it's like we're reading this stuff, and it just doesn't even seem real. So there's the imposter widow. They, she ends up being found out. Then there are these two sisters in Germany that are discovered. Uh, they end up trying to fight for the fortune. Harry Berry himself is somehow involved, and there's a lawsuit from the sisters claiming that he was trying to steal the fortune. And, you know, the craziest thing is at the end of this insane, crazy tale, the real widow, Helen, is found alive at a beach in Brooklyn in 1936. And, and all actually, of these accounts if I understand, we're in the local paper. Uh, this kind of was where it gave you the accounting of what had happened back in the 30s, the early to mid-30s, of how just uh, really fantastical this story is, which, of course, started with your purchasing this house and discovering the stuff under the crawl space, and it came out to be almost, you know, uh, a whole narrative here that could fill a, a novel or two. <laughs> No, absolutely. And that's the thing. We know we're still trying to piece together the story because every, every other, you know, there's so many articles and a lot of these articles are even before his death. And so it's, we're trying to piece together this story and it's so complicated and so crazy. I mean, you know, the funny thing is this wife that was found alive at the very end of the story, we find out later in looking at other articles in this other court cases, she actually tried to divorce him. He was sort of abusive. She tried to get away, and he paid off the judge, paid off the witnesses. They, were, they wouldn't let her get divorced, so she ran. And it was because of that that 25 years later, she ends up with a huge part of the fortune. <laughs> wow. After being discovered at a beach in Brooklyn. Uh, boy, After when they say... Beach, oh, and also, there was another wife. He actually was <laughs> married to another woman at the same time as the wow. missing wife. Wow. Wow. Uh, what a great what a great find in so many uh, places or on so many levels. You just buy this house because it was your dream home. And uh, in the small village in upstate New York, then you find the booze. Then you find there's a story attendant to that. And you keep finding it's the gift that keeps on giving. As they say, if these walls could talk, uh, man, in a way, uh, you're piecing together the story. And uh, it really lends a luster to this dream home of yours and Patrick's, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, honestly, yeah, absolutely. We're both, you know, total historic preservation nuts. So the fact that we are finding this insane, crazy story in our own house, I mean, we're on cloud nine. We love it. And it just just keeps getting wackier the more we read. I mean, the names are like out of a Dr. Seuss book. There's, you know, (laughs) there's Adolf Humpfner. There's uh, there's this other guy, Luscious Beers. There's Terry Berry. It's just, it just keeps on going and going, and there's more twists, and, you know, we're still trying to piece together what exactly went down here. I mean, they actually, after his death, they found abandoned lumber trucks in the backyard that were filled with secret compartments, 
but the secret compartments were empty, so they could never actually prove anything about how he made his fortune. Hmm. Anyway, fascinating story. I appreciate your sharing it with us. Uh, continue to enjoy, and uh, we'll see where this one leads us. You can find out on Facebook at Bootlegger Bungalow. Uh, there's more of that story to be pursued by Nick Drummond and his partner Patrick in upstate New York. Nick, thanks for weighing in this afternoon. Really enjoyed living vicariously through your thrill. All right, I'll thank you so much. Solving Christine Jessup's cold case murder from 1984. And uh, Calvin Hoover was identified through an interesting uh, study in genealogy, uh, genetic genealogy, tracking and tracing now that we've got a, a sophisticated way of doing this with DNA. Uh, as we know, the DNA sample that was taken in 84 helped to exonerate Guy Paul Moran, but as late as 1995, uh, took a while. But here we find ourselves on the precipice of all kinds of wonderful discoveries and uh, resolutions to cold cases, and no one knows that better than C.C. Moore, who's a pioneer in the use of genetic genealogy and head of the Parabon Nanolabs Genetic Genealogical Unit. And she's helped law enforcement agencies to identify more than 100 suspects in various cold cases. Now, here we go with this story. Are you familiar or have you heard of this update of the Christine Jessup outcome yesterday that made the news certainly across this country? Oh, absolutely. I was already familiar with the case long before. Good to know. Uh, and so uh, I guess because uh, you're a pioneer in this particular field of genetic genealogy, maybe you can walk us through how this played out uh, in terms of family trees being developed, because there's still some folks who are uh, unclear as to how that might have not involved uh, breaches of privacy uh, or didn't specify an individual per se. How'd it go? Sure. So they, we take the crime scene DNA on these cold cases and we analyze it using a newer technology, uh, genotyping or full genome sequencing. And we create a file that resembles a file you would get if you tested at one of the direct-to-consumer DNA testing companies. We're not using the big companies like Ancestry DNA or 23andMe, but if people have tested there, they can upload their data to two websites that do allow law enforcement access called GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA. So that crime scene DNA of that unknown person is uploaded to those two websites and it's compared against people that have opted in to law enforcement matching, meaning they're saying, yes, you can use my DNA file for comparison. Then we're looking for people who share significant amounts of DNA with each other. Now that could only be 1% of their DNA for our use. And then we're going to build the family trees of those people that share DNA with that unknown suspect and try to reverse engineer his family tree based on the people that he's related to. Does that require a critical mass of submissions then? It absolutely does. And it has gotten harder in a sense because when we first were using GEDmatch, uh, there was about a million profiles we could compare against. But after some pressure, GEDmatch decided to change their terms of service, so everyone has to actively opt in to law enforcement. And so we only have about 300,000 people presently that we can compare against there. All right. Well, GEDmatch, uh, I believe, might have been instrumental in solving this case. Do you know if it was? Um, typically, now... We're using GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA, so yes, I am sure that it was, but it might not have been exclusively GEDmatch. 
All right. And so based on the number, whether it was 300,000 submissions or a million, uh, that was adequate to start to develop the family tree and uh, be used as an investigative tool by the police to take it from there uh, without actually knowing a name. They were just sort of filling in the picture as one might with a jigsaw puzzle. Yes, and Canadian cases are much harder because Canadians have much stricter privacy laws, and it's harder for us to build those families to the present to identify the living descendants of the common ancestors that we identify. And so it takes longer typically with a Canadian case than it would with one in the United States. Interesting. Again, C.C. Moore, a pioneer in the use of genetic genealogy and head of the Parabon Nanolabs Genetic Genealogical Unit. And you might have seen her on uh, the Dr. Oz show, uh, Dr. Phil, and uh, as well on ABC, uh, where I guess she was working on her own show as a consultant, uh, Let me, the genetic detective. Let me ask you, though, uh, when you've got, got this sort of picture that's coming into focus of a family tree, how do you fine-tune it or get very granular where you can start to maybe uh, ascertain that there's a single individual there? Uh, does it require that individual's DNA, which, by the way, was on file with the Toronto Police, the York Regional Police as well since 1984? When do you say, let's check this out and see if we've got a match? Well, when a law enforcement agency comes to us and says they would like to use investigative genetic genealogy, we have to go back to that original crime scene DNA sample. So that means there has to be remaining DNA to reanalyze from scratch. So it's really dependent on those original crime scene investigators, what they collected, and then how well has it been stored all of these years or decades. If it's still viable, and most of it is degraded, we can work with degraded DNA, then we're going to put it through that process and create that file that's viable for genetic genealogy analysis and for upload to GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA. Then we're going to typically use maybe a dozen of the top matches or 20 of the top matches. Those might be second, third, fourth cousins. And we're looking for overlaps, for commonalities, common ancestors between those people who we know who they are and we can build their family trees. And then once we start finding these patterns, we're putting those pieces together, like you said, as a, it's like filling in a puzzle. You know, Cece, before I let you go, I'm just amazed at uh, some of the stories or cases that you've worked on and resolved uh, where human identification is the object, uh, artificial insemination, sperm swap cases, uh, birth parent searches and adoption, is there one maybe that stands out as the benchmark uh, that you're particularly proud of? It's difficult to say because there are so many, but I think when law enforcement started realizing that these techniques that I developed for unknown parentage and for family mysteries might be able to be applied to these cold cases is possibly with the Benjamin Kyle case. He was an amnesiac found in Georgia uh, had no idea who he was, and law enforcement tried very hard to help him using all the traditional forensics, and they were unable to. But with genetic genealogy, we were able to return to him his legal, true identity so he could start living a more normal life again. And I think that was one of the ones that got a lot of media attention and made people realize just how powerful genetic genealogy is. Yeah, and that was an 11-year wait for him to find out who he was, in fact, wasn't it? Yeah, yes. 
you're very educated on this. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Uh, there you go. Uh, we're in good company. Uh, you're very educated in your field as well, obviously, as a pioneer in the use of genetic genealogy. I find it fascinating, and I hope down the road we'll get an, uh, another opportunity to speak again. Uh, really, like to find out more about uh, how you track and trace people. Uh, just scratching the surface today, but for very good reason. CC, uh, appreciate your time. By the way, uh, the show. Uh, what is the status of the show? Where are you going to be seen next? Well, the genetic detective show that aired here in the U.S. on ABC, I'm told, is supposed to be airing in Canada before too long. So hopefully some of your listeners will be able to tune in and see that. We cover six different cases that I helped law enforcement to solve. And I look forward to hearing from everyone. Maybe we can talk again if it gets scheduled to air there. That's a promise. Really appreciate your time. Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you. Thank you so much. Cece Moore again, a pioneer in the use of genetic genealogy. We need to find a path forward uh, that recognizes the inherent and long-standing rights reaffirmed 21 years ago of Indigenous people for uh, modest livelihoods. Uh, and we need to make sure that that uh, fits within uh, an important commercial activity in the Maritimes, uh, that is fishing. That was the Prime Minister as uh, he is trying to, I guess, uh, come up with some kind of a resolution, although some are not impressed, and that would include Chief Michael Sack, who is uh, the chief of the Sabaganagi, the uh, First Nation. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Chief. I appreciate you joining us here on the Oakley Show in Toronto to uh, give us your point of view uh, as to what is playing out here on the East Coast. Uh, a good afternoon and welcome, first off. Hey, John. Thanks very much for, uh, for having me. Well, uh, help me out here. So the prime minister, I guess, you know, somebody had said prior to your joining us that he's between a rock and a hard place. So uh, in a perfect world, what would you have the prime minister do? I think in the perfect world, the prime minister would step in, to, uh, ensure the safety of everyone that's involved down here, and also to, um, to help put this to bed with, uh, with our, upholding our treaty rights to a right to a moderate livelihood and to um, ensure that those aren't infringed upon. When you say moderate livelihood, it seems like that's kind of the nub of it all, uh, where the non-Indigenous fishers claim that this is a commercial enterprise that goes beyond a moderate li livelihood. Uh, how do you respond to that? I've always said uh, we're looking at 1% to 2% of the species coming out for us as to what they're taking out. So, you know, uh, we're, uh, moderate livelihood is yet to find, but, um, you know, they're making six or $700,000 a year with their fishery, so... It's uh, apples and oranges. Um, we're nowhere as close to what they're they're doing. Now, uh, Chief, yours is a, a relatively new fishery, uh, the one at the center of the dispute, isn't it? Yeah, it is. We just rolled it out um, September 17th. It was the 21st anniversary of the Donald Marshall decision. Uh -huh. So it's been, you know, 21 years that this has been kicked around the table and, uh, and nothing's been done. So we, our community decided to um, make a move. We've been working on it for a few years now. We finally get to the place we're ready to do so you know somebody had called and said that this is a uh, part of the disparity between uh indigenous peoples and the non-indigenous fishers because the non-indigenous fishers have to uh buy licenses that can run as as much as three quarters of a million dollars and so uh that seems like it's unfair on the face of it how do you respond to that um that's a typical privilege answer um you know what i mean all we got to do this we got to do that yeah sure um they owe us a lot of land tax. They've been here on our land for, for a number of years, and uh, we have a right to fish. They don't have that, so uh, there's a difference there. 
again with Chief Michael Sack on this Nova Scotia fisheries dispute that uh, you claim is uh, at its uh, core is systemic racism or constitutes a, a hate crime or hate crimes. How so? Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, we're First Nations people here and we're being targeted by non-Indigenous people. Um, in, re- in regards to like uh, hurting, hurting our people, taking us away, preventing us from doing what we need to do, and, and it's targeted towards a, a race. So we, therefore, uh, it's a hate crime, and um, it's very uncalled for and unnecessary. It's been said in the media that you're considering, at some point, perhaps bringing That's in a for the Open Show podcast the country, Friday, uh, October 16, blockades we saw. You can listen to the show weekday was, uh, afternoons live late from last 3 to year. 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Right, yeah. Listen so, live um, at 640 toronto.com or search yet. the name uh, John Oakley. A few lawyers have showed up um, to help keep the peace and to make sure that uh, you know the women and children and elders are, are protected. What do you think the prospects of this uh, being a flashpoint and turning violent uh, could be? I mean, there have been some altercations, and uh, I believe the stocks were uh, disrupted, and uh, I saw some violence the other day. I think you were at the center of it. Somebody was, uh, you know, attacking you, if I've got that correct. Uh, What are the prospects of this escalating into greater violence? Yeah, that's the whole time I've been working on trying to keep this as peaceful as we can and trying to make sure that my people, you know, back away from it and, and don't interact and, you know, stay cool. I can only do it for so long, unfortunately. And um, I'm sure that a lot more severe violence is around the corner if it doesn't, uh, the government doesn't step in and, and do what everyone is asking them to do. Yeah, when you say the government, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans is uh, one branch that would be directly involved. There's also the RCMP there. Uh, and do you believe that they're doing enough? They say they're overwhelmed and all they want to do right now is keep the peace rather than having any other greater intervener role. Are they missing in action on this play? They definitely are. You know, they got a fraction here of what should be here. So they're just onlookers right now. They're not even keeping the peace. They have a, a front row seat to um, these hate crimes. And uh, that's what I mean. That's the frustration. We were told that more members were coming because we had people that were, they had the road blocked off both ways. The fishermen did, you know, our people were stuck in the middle. But not enough police were there to keep the action um, under control. That's our frustration. Where are the police? It was the other way around. The place would be loaded with RCMP officers. Right, which gets us back to why you feel there's systemic racism being applied here. Yeah, if it was 300 natives and 30 commercial fishermen, the army would be called in, right? Like, it's uh, it's just not, not the same at all. Do you feel your uh, people are being scapegoated for the fish stocks being depleted? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, there's just commercial fishermen, you know, that are not willing to make any less money from year to year. Um, we offered Minister Jordan to do a joint study um, with the science behind the species over, you know, like over a 20-year period. And they do cycle in life, so uh, like a seven-year span of a cycle. So we're not hurting the, the species at all. Like, we're not we're not taking much out of the water. Um, I think the numbers were 60 million pounds they would take out and we're looking at like uh maybe a million pounds of it or something so there's a a big difference i also mentioned that if there's a conservation issues for the species they should drop the number of traps from 375 down 100 or something maybe right so if there's a concern but as far as everyone's saying there's no concern about species well how do you feel do you think sustainability of the resource is at issue i don't believe it is and um, 
conservation is our main concern for the, for the lobster. Um, we're monitoring that very closely. You know, we have a, a compliance with our fishery, and um, we're making sure that no undersized, no seeded lobster, none of that. Like, we're all following very strict rules, and um, it's just the size difference. I argue with uh, people if they want to cut it back, they're looking at the wrong industry. They're looking at the wrong fishermen. Well, the non-Indigenous fishermen obviously have a federally regulated lobster season, whereas uh, you're not bound by those strictures. Uh, That's one of their complaints as well, if I understand correctly. Do you think you ought to be uh, in some way limited to a seasonal catch? No, we'll, uh, we'll determine that ourselves. We're, uh, we're our own government, our First Nations community is, and um, we have all the rights to do so as anyone else. So um, we're going to monitor and govern that ourselves, and we will, and we're willing to share information with DFO for the overall you know, longevity of lobster. Yeah, when you say willing to share information, uh, has there been any suggestion that everybody sort of get together at the same table in a sort of consultative capacity, uh, yourself, the other non-Indigenous fishermen, and that this thing might find some kind of a peaceful resolution? Well, we had conversations with um, an industry leader, uh, and we're supposed to meet this morning at 10 o'clock, but he was um, forced not to by other industry leaders and um, threats to his family and such, so he had to, he actually resigned his position this morning. Well, what about the Department of Fisheries and Oceans? Uh, wouldn't they want to broker a piece here and come up with something satisfactory for all the parties? Again, that, that's not up to them. Like, we're going to, you know, determine where we're going to end up with our, our seasons and our, um, you know, amount of traps and stuff. But, uh, you know, we're willing to, to keep them up to date and informed on what we have going on. And if there's something that they can support, some kind of a science that shows there's a, a risk of, lobster in general will um will our management plan's a living document you know we'll, we'll amend it and make changes to it for uh what's best for everyone all right but chief uh it's been said that you're planning to pursue lawsuits if you don't kind of get to uh, operate as you see fit or uh would want to then how would you go about pursuing lawsuits if you feel you're, you're sovereign and uh, really are masters in your own domain how would you go about that or why would you go about that uh, just just to make sure that, you know, nobody's infringing on our rights. And uh, we're already in the process of, you know, getting paperwork drawn up to um, to put people on notice and to get the ball rolling and uh, just take action. Like, if, if people don't want to work with us, then um, we'll, take, we'll take steps that we need to take. So are you still willing to uh, listen to the Prime Minister or uh, whoever his envoy may be in this case? Is there somebody that can broker this uh, from the federal level to your satisfaction? Uh, the federal level, all they need to do is to uphold that treaty right and respect that we have the right to govern ourselves. Um, after that, everything will be well. They, they need to step in and uh, help the, the non-Indigenous to understand that. Wow, it doesn't seem like there's a resolution anytime soon. I hope this doesn't continue to fester because it uh, could get out of control or off the rails. Uh, I appreciate your giving us your point of view on the matter, though. It helps us to understand better here in central Canada what's playing out in the Maritimes. Wish you the best, and uh, I thank you for your time this afternoon. All right, thanks very much. You got it. Chief Mike Sack, again, uh, chief of one of the largest Mi'kmaq bands in Nova Scotia. That's the lobster battle. 
That's a wrap for the Oakley Show podcast for Friday, October 16, 2020. You can listen to the show weekday afternoons live from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 